the year 2020, and the church is still acting like it's 1982. That's the year we were born. And ten years into this gig, we are doing our best to help the church into the future. We are iPhone pastors for a typewriter church, and this is the Millennial Pastors Podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Pastors Podcast. My name is Eric Parker. And I'm Courtney Reedman Parker. And this is Episode 3, Pandemic Ministry Part 2. In our last episode, we talked about how we got here and the beginnings of the pandemic, which honestly, six months in seems like a long time ago. In this episode, we will turn to look at the practical applications of ministry in the midst of a pandemic and how this pandemic is shaping ministry into the future. So our last episode, we uh, broke into two acts, and Act 1 was the early stages of the pandemic. I think I entitled it, uh, What the Hell is Going On? And we just talked about those early days of making all the decisions about church closures and trying to adapt our worship early on and and communicating with our congregations around uh, closing down worship for at that time what was going to be three weeks until Easter. And then the second act was about the shift to online ministry and all of us becoming instant televangelists, broadcasting ourselves on Facebook, YouTube, and all other manner of social media platforms. And some of the challenges that came along that, along with doing all of our other church business on things like Zoom and how that's affected ministry and the way that we maintain relationships and stay connected to colleagues, stay connected to our congregation, and, uh, and a new way to do ministry. And, and a little bit about how the gospel or this pandemic has. Uh, helped shape and given a little bit cl- of clarity to the way we were preaching and proclaiming the gospel. So finally, we hinted at the third act of our conversation being, should we or shouldn't we? And so there's a lot of should we or shouldn't we questions that have come up during this uh, pandemic. And the first one that I remember, and I don't think we'll talk about too much, but it's worth noting, was the issue of virtual communion. That is, having communion, uh, people taking communion in their homes as pastors broadcast themselves presiding at communion online. And all I'll say is that there is a whole lot of debate and a whole lot of conversation if you want to find out uh, what I thought about virtual communion, that is a blog post available on millennialpastor.ca. So you certainly can go and read that there. But the other blog post that I wrote early on in the pandemic, relatively early on, was a post that went, it was my most viral blog post, not to toot my own horn. <laughs> but uh, but you will, you will. are. Yeah, because it got almost, I think, almost 100,000 views. Uh, and it, it was a description of um, going back to in-person worship in the midst of this pandemic. Because it didn't take long for public health orders 
to be such that people were imagining how they could comply with the orders, but also return to in-person worship. And so I described in my post what I thought was a narrative, a storytelling version of what all these public health orders looked like. Because one of the things that I noticed early on was that the public health orders were sort of stale or or maybe clinical, obviously clinical, coming from clinicians and epidemiologists. But they they didn't really give a picture of what the experience would be like uh, going back to in-person worship. And so I remember talking about wearing masks and people uh, screening you as you entered into church, having to follow taped out lines into the sanctuary to your pew, not being able to mingle or mix, having to stand six feet apart as you waited in line to go into the church, not being able to sing, the pastor talking to a cell phone at the front, presumably the live-streamed congregation watching at home, and how it not being anything like the in-person worship that we're used to. And, uh, So a lot of people read that post. I got a lot of positive feedback. I also got some negative feedback. People called me apocalyptic and sowing the seeds of dissent and shaming. And all I was trying to do was describe um, what it would be like to go back to in-person worship. Don't forget dystopian. Oh, dystopian. That was one of my my favorite comments was the dystopian character of what I described, which is really kind of funny because it is basically what in-person looks like, in-person worship, in-person gatherings look like for churches all over the world now. I think it highlights what so many people are feeling in this sense of loss, and it's not just in our churches, it's nearly everywhere. Right? I mean, this is very minor, but it's getting through your arrowed grocery shop and realizing you forgot something, and gone are the days that you can leave your cart half emptied on the conveyor and say to the person behind you, Oh, I just have to run to grab one more thing. Right? So much has changed. We're making so much, so many adaptations, and we know already in the church, making even the slightest, smallest, most minuscule adaptation to the way we do things, whatever that thing is in our particular context, can take years. And a lot of... (laughs) Heartache and pain and conflict along the way. Right, and loss. And so, as people are navigating these decisions and these public health orders and our lives in this, you know, new reality, which very few of us imagined would still be taking place, to read a narrative in that way was difficult yeah people people i think it has it, it evoked a visceral reaction and it was sort of the the reason i wrote it was not to write something viral i've written a lot of other blog posts in the hope of writing something viral but this one it's funny how the ones that you 
that you don't write with that intention, but I just needed to get something out for my own sake as much as anybody else that described all these public health orders for myself in a way that told a story that I could that I could, you know, take back to my people or to colleagues and say this is what it looks like. And I really felt like, you know, as we would go through these checklists, these long documents with these bullet points, it wasn't describing what it would be like because we had to translate the the bullet point list with all the protocols and public health orders into the worship and the way we used to gather that we were so so ingrained in us that we've been practicing for a whole lifetime and and I was I was struggling to see how these two would fit with one another and so I can I guess I'm not entirely surprised that people people had such a visceral reaction to to that blog post but uh but I'm glad it helped some people I'm glad uh, that it was useful but um but it also speaks to you know the the challenge that churches are facing as we consider what it looks like to I told my people we're not going back we're not resuming we're beginning new ministry new ways of doing in-person gatherings and and so what does it look like to begin something new at this time when you know there's so much news out there about how the coronavirus and how covid-19 is spread and unfortunately churches are one of the prime kind of conditions and locations for coronavirus to spread I know there's been a lot of conversation about over the past few months over is this airborne and what kind of what kind of activities cause the spread. We were all worried about touching each other in the early days. But now, over the past few weeks or months, it's really become clear that it's about breathing in each other's air. And so there were those stories about churches being super spreader events, places where um, you know, churches would gather, and they thought they were doing everything right. They were social distancing, they were not touching one another, and yet people, you know, there would be 5, 10, 15, 20 people that got sick. There was that choir practice that's become world famous now where a whole bunch of people got sick and a few people even died. And the epidemiologists and the, the doctors weren't quite sure, or they weren't, they weren't, um, they hadn't, felt it was scientifically tested to the fullest yet to say, yeah, it's, it's airborne. And I've also, maybe you can tell I'm a bit of a researcher when it comes to this stuff, that, that there is also in the medical community a real hesitancy to call something airborne so as not to incite panic the way that you know people panicked about measles and, and other airborne uh, illnesses. And so they the the general theory is not to call something airborne because you don't want to cause panic but it really is an issue of the coronavirus being an airborne thing and churches with often few windows not very good ventilation doing things that cause people to breathe heavily like talk pray speak together all in unison sing together and stay in the same room <laughs> Or you know, an hour or longer together. These are all these are all high risk activities for the spread of coronavirus, and so it really makes 
opening church is a difficult decision. And, and I really struggle with it. I really struggle with, with uh, this decision. And I know a lot of our colleagues are struggling with it. And I know it's pushing a lot of people sort of to the edge and, and pushing pastors to a sense of frustration and even burnout, trying to figure out how to manage this, how to navigate communities that want to get back together and worship. And the reality of the high-risk nature of gathering to do this thing that is central to our identity, to our mission, to who we are as communities. Sure, and the and the real fear of causing harm to people that we care about, the people that we love, the people that as pastors were called to serve and to lead and to shepherd and feed and the idea of harm coming to any of those people at a church event is devastating it's something that keeps me up at night and i know keeps many of our colleagues up at night thinking through the possible ramifications of making the best decisions that we that we can with the information that we have today which is ever changing which i think then also makes these decisions somewhat harder yeah it makes it makes them harder it makes them um you know people have different sources people are getting their information from different places you know your your cousin who heard this thing from a guy he knows versus a public health doctor and they're taken as equal authorities on these matters and even you know different news sources have different biases and and different perspectives even the same news source you know cbc in canada will publish an article about the dangers of coronavirus one one day and then the next day another article about the dangers of keeping the economy locked down and so there's so there seems to be risk in every direction um but there's also been a lot of adaptations people are figuring out new and creative ways to gather for worship. There's a lot of parking lot services. People are uh, sitting in their cars. Churches are using FM transmitters so that people can hear the service through their car radio. Um, they are uh, gathering outdoors in parks, on church lawns. They're um, finding ways to to adapt to the situation. And then, of course, there are churches who have boldly gone ahead and have been worshiping indoors for a long time. You know, churches that are even a few blocks from mine that have been worshiping indoors since, since uh, July, I guess, when the, when the public health orders were changed to allow sort of a reasonable group to gather. And I guess they haven't had an outbreak yet, but that remains to be seen how long that might last. They sort of picked the right time to do it when there was a really low case numbers in Manitoba. Yeah, so churches and church leadership are navigating 
all of these decisions about should we gather in person at all? If we are going to do that, how do we do that? Do we do that outside? Do we go inside? How do we both faithfully follow public health orders? And if you are in a denomination that has offered a directive or guidelines, how to follow those guidelines and how to how to find people to be able to put all of those things into place. So there are a lot of details to navigate just to get to the point of, and now we're going to meet in person together again. We're just going to get people into the building. Like we're not, we're barely talking about what we're going to do. Just, just getting people into the building. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was, I've been listening to other podcasts, podcasts by doctors and journalists and, and one in particular, the Ezra Klein show, um, talked about sort of these principles of these pandemic principles of how we can adapt or the way we do things. And, and I think that's one of the things that's been missing in this conversation. We get these huge documents with all these public health orders and we have to sift through what's important and what's not important, right? Is it really important for us to be wiping down every surface that might be touched by somebody and they ever touch it? Do we need to do a full sort of sanitization of a bathroom after every use? Or are things like the time we spend indoor in poor, poorly ventilated spaces, the time we spend together indoors, unmasked versus masked, masked, the time we spend indoors doing things like singing, doing things like speaking, you know, the Lord's Prayer together, the Creed together, time spent indoors uh, in distances that are in close proximity on that six foot, that six foot sort of edge or even closer. And, and so some of these things I think are important to, to sort of have, I found in my own mind to prioritize like outdoors is better than indoors. If you can do it outdoors, do it outdoors. You know, less time is better than more time. If you can make it shorter, make it shorter. Wear masks if you're going to be inside with other people. You know, if can you do it on Zoom? Can you do it online instead? You really need to be in person to do this thing. And if we just had some of these principles, I think it would make it a lot easier to navigate the long lists of things we have to do to follow public health orders and recognize what's the most important. Is it, is, you know, does it really help to make everybody late wait in line for the bathroom as it's being sanitized after every use? Or would it be better just to get it used and people out outdoors and not indoors together? So sometimes I think we're almost working at cross purposes when we don't really understand what the how the virus works and how it is transmit particularly in our spaces and in the things in the things that we tend to do as churches once we figured out how to do all this stuff and how to begin considering gathering and organizing our community. There's this communication piece 
I didn't really realize before how much I relied on the announcement portion of the service to communicate things to my congregation and how much they relied on it too, that this was almost the prime time when I would, you know, tell people this is what's happening and they would hear this is what's happening. And so now when that's taken away, there has to be all these other forms and modes and methods of communication that people are adapting to. And you can send emails, but you never know if people open them or you never know when they're going to open them and if they're going to actually take in the information you send. And so there's phone calls, there's texts, there's social media messages. There has to be all these other ways of communicating, which have become a lot more important. But it's also been new avenues for ministry that I've certainly found in this time. And it really is affected by not gathering in person, having to figure out all these other means of communication. Yeah, it's not just about the abundance of pastoral letters that we're writing on a, you know, almost every week, weekly basis. Um, I guess to a degree, we got to take a little bit of a break over the summer as we, a lot of us made decisions to continue online ministry and worship services through the summer and so there wasn't the need to be communicating with updates every week like there was in the beginning but it's also figuring out how we have been communicating with one another and when you don't have it's not just the announcements but also just those small interactions that you have with people on Sunday morning or through the week as they come to church for whatever committee meeting or they're dropping something off for the food pantry or they're dropping by because they're on altar duty that week or whatever that thing is that you have those brief interactions with people where you can check in with them or where they can share with you did you know so-and-so dot, dot, dot. And those are often the ways in which deeper connections and pastoral care happens is through those ordinary, what might, might seem like insignificant interactions. And so when those pieces aren't happening, that's where you start seeing the gaps or that's where I've started to see where some of those gaps are. But at the same time, finding new ways to connect with people and to connect maybe more intentionally into people's spiritual lives. So rather than having that brief interaction when somebody's dropping off their item for the food pantry, you're posting a video on your website or on your Facebook page with maybe the psalm for the week, or I know we had a colleague who was doing a daily devotion and time to walk and pray and to think about the scripture and how we've become much more intentional about talking about our faith and making very public posts about here's here's a way that I see God at work in our world this week, which a lot of us 
It's not that we weren't doing it, but we certainly weren't doing it so publicly. And maybe it's because so many many of my my Facebook friends and people online are are pastors, are involved in ministry, and I'm now seeing all of the things that they're they're doing. But that wasn't happening six months ago. No, it's true. There wasn't a lot of that sort of public public space proclaiming your faith kind of activities six months ago by a lot of people online. And some of the other um, adaptations of ministry that I've that I've seen is you know how do because it's not just worship that we do right. It's other there's all sorts of other things visitation teaching ministry Bible studies confirmation. So people are doing outdoor visits, meeting on on lawns, going for walks. Um, you know, it's not all online. Some of it might be, but some of it's also outdoors, socially distanced, in person. I did an outdoor wedding this summer, where we all uh, sort of were socially distanced as we had the reception and celebrated this marriage. Um, there's been visits that are outside. I visited with a number of parishioners who happen to be by often the the ones who are mowing the lawn or coming by to drop something off and you just visit on the porch of the church for for a little bit and check in and see how each other's doing and and you do it outside and you sort of trust that you know this is like a much lower risk environment rather than sitting in an office or sitting in the church basement um you know and and the confirmation ministry that I'm a part of with a couple other congregations where we get our students together and share the teaching we we met outdoors in July, I think it was, to plan what our ministry would look like this fall. And so I think, you know, maybe it was even just tonight, the class was meeting together outside around a bonfire to do their confirmation class with the pastor who's teaching tonight. And my, my turn to teach comes later on in October, and I'm pretty sure we'll be moving online because uh, it all seemed well and good in July when the when the sun would stay up till 9.30 or 10 o'clock here, but when it goes down at 7 or 6.30, it's a lot different uh, A lot different to get a bunch of teenagers to not shiver and listen to stuff about the Bible for an hour and a half outside. So, you know, there's adaptations to the way, to the way we have to do all of our ministry and every part of it. And, um, and it does affect, you know, visitation and pastoral care the way that we have been used to doing them for so long. We talked a little bit about this in our first episode, how the the shift from 20th to 21st century, and now it's another shift from pre-pandemic to to during the pandemic, how we do these ministries and how they have to be adapted. And and it's not just the technical change of of being outside or inside, you know, text messages and, and emails instead of in-person visits. They also change the nature of how we understand community and how we understand a relationship with one another. And especially for older generations who are used to the pastor dropping in, have been used to it for 75 years, now have to figure out how to send a text message with their phone. I mean, I did a, a funeral in June. And I was I was texting with an elderly widow, um, which was something I never expected. And I know I would have never done that, you know, seven months ago, 
that would have not happened. I would have phoned. I would have gone to visit. I would have invited them to the church. We would have we would have had the briefest phone interaction possible in order to plan for the for the uh, in person visit. And instead, this time it was praying over the phone, praying for her husband on his deathbed over the phone, and then planning the funeral over the phone so as to keep one another safe. So it's, yeah, it's all adaptations and, and uh, easier for some, more difficult for others, but we all have to do it. Well, and I'm just wondering if, if some of us, both clergy and lay people, have been making these adaptations along the way. And I'm thinking particularly of the shared ministry that we both participated in at different points and how it was not uncommon to do phone visitation rather than in person because the the points in the shared ministry were hundreds of kilometers apart from one another and apart from where where we are situated and so it often didn't make sense from the stewardship of our time or from the finances of the church to pay the mileage to drive 125 kilometers to meet with a family for 45 minutes to plan a funeral when you could do it over FaceTime or over the phone. And so by the time we happen to be in this pandemic, the idea of meeting with a family over the phone or over Zoom or FaceTime to plan a funeral did not seem like a strange or unconventional idea for me because I had done it already and found that, oh, all of the things that we did in person we could do with these other, through these other means, and it didn't lessen the quality of the pastoral care. Yeah, the shift was not necessarily in the the technical change, but in sort of the understanding of what relationships mean and how relationships could be. Absolutely. Yeah. The Millennial Pastors Podcast is made possible by a generous grant from the Manitoba Northwestern Ontario Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada. The Manitoba Northwestern Ontario, or MNO, Synod is one of five synods of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, commonly known as the ELCIC. Our synod covers 60 congregations in the provinces of Manitoba and Northwestern Ontario, from Brandon, Manitoba in the west, to Thunder Bay, Ontario in the east, stretching from the southern point of Morris, close to the U.S. border, all the way north to Thompson, which borders on Canada's north. The MNO Synod has a baptized membership of 17,000 members. Headquartered in Winnipeg, Manitoba, the Synod serves congregations through the Ministry of the Bishop's Office and working in the areas of youth and young adult ministry, missions, outdoor ministry, social justice, ecumenical relations, stewardship, and guiding ordained ministers and pastors through call processes. The MNO Synod can be found online at mnosynod.org and on Facebook and Instagram. Check them out if you want to find a congregation in the MNO or if you want to find out more about their work. 
I also hear if you call the Synod office, you can just talk to our bishop, Jason Zinko. of our conversation about pandemic ministry during a pandemic. We are entitling Pandemic Long Haul <laughs> that this uh, is not going to be the three-week holiday and that everybody's back and happy that we imagined at the beginning. And it's not going to be the six-month mir- miracle vaccine that some are promising out there in the world. It is going to be a, a long haul, and and getting our heads wrapped around that, I think, is going to be a challenge as leaders, as clergy, and as folks in the pews. I just came across an article today entitled, Nothing Can Make Up for the Loss Back to Worship in a Pandemic, and we'll make it available in the show notes and put it on the Millennial Pastors Facebook page. But what really struck me was how the author really put into words some pieces that I've been feeling. I think in particular because I had just started a new call and am grieving all of the pieces that will never happen in this first year in ministry that are are really exciting for a pastor and a congregation to learn about one another. Um, And so I would invite people to take a look at that article as we sort of think through what does it look like as we begin again. As, as people, as people of faith, as congregations, as members, because we are grieving loss. We're grieving losses in so many different areas, including the loss of members in our community. And having to grieve those losses in much different ways. I just had a, f- a funeral, a graveside funeral last weekend for one of our charter members. It all took place out at the cemetery and I offered to record it for the family knowing that not everybody who would want to be at the service would be able to be there. And this was a way that we could offer to them as church to participate in the service was to be able to watch it after the fact. And so the sense of loss, the sense of grief is both from personal losses that we are grieving, but also in part is the recognition that this isn't a short-term thing or the adaptations that we are making aren't just a solution uh, to COVID-19 protocols or safety measures or health guidelines or synod directives, but really a shift in the way that we do ministry and the way that we are church. 
And that's terrifying to a lot of people. I mean, it really is the, it really is the, the same sort of grieving that people have been doing around the shift from 20th to 21st century, that a lot of the stuff that we're experiencing is things that are already happening to us, already was happening to us. There might be the very particulars of COVID-19 and pandemic protocols, but the shifts that we're making are things that were coming to us. They're just coming a lot faster in the last six months than we probably anticipated. Things that we thought would take six years maybe happened in six weeks. You know, things that we thought would take maybe 15 years have happened in six months. And so the grief is intensified. And I think in a way, for a lot of people, we talked about in episode one, a lot of people coming to church and looking for ghosts, people that weren't there, the people that are missing, that that this has, in a way, realized their greatest fear, right? The church stopped gathering in so many ways that was so important to their to their spirituality, to their sense of community and identity. And I think for a lot of folks, it really was tied as much or maybe even more to being a part of a community, having this habit of going to this place and doing this thing as it was tied to faith, as it was tied to hearing the good news and being shaped and formed by the gospel of Jesus. And so this pandemic has made the worst fear become realized, maybe even in a way worse than the church actually closing, a congregation actually closing, because at least you can kind of let go, you can kind of have a funeral, so to speak, you have a last service, you wrap up, you decommission a church. There is a process for that, but this is just like things stopped and people stopped going to church. And yet the church is still there. Like the building is still there. You still drive by it, you know, in your daily life. You can still see it. And yet you know that nothing is actually happening there. And I know that there are people who are really upset and grieving this part of it because it is like the worst fear of their grief that they've been carrying for 20 years coming to coming to fruition, actually coming to pass is the church just stopped existing and now it's the the most complete empty shell that it possibly could be a place that is empty there's a pastor leading worship with literally no one in the pews like this is the worst case scenario of this grief of looking for ghosts that we talked about in the first episode and so i think that's that's a huge part of of what people are feeling right now what people are experiencing and I would be willing to bet that that's a huge part of why so many people out there are wanting to get back to in-person worship. They don't want the shell, the empty shell, to continue to exist because it's too painful. Like, they want to bring, bring the church back to life, even if it's sort of a zombie of itself, rather than the real thing that, that will hopefully come down the road. Right, or haven't haven't fully recognized that even gathering together as as we have said as your blog post so helpfully painted the picture right that even coming back 
now will not be the same as it was before. And I'm not sure that for a lot of people that reality will be truly known and felt until it's lived. To be able to experience, oh, this is worship, but it is not worship the way I remember it. We're back together but we're not together in the ways that we are used to being together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that people will, you know, people are not, not uh, seeing, even reading my story, even reading the, the narrative version of the protocols that I wrote. That's not enough. It, they have to live it out. And they might even take, it might even take a number of times of attending because there is sort of the excitement the first time you go. We've had a couple of, of outdoor worship services by now and, and people are really excited. I mean, I have to confess, I, I sort of felt like they were, they were, you know, pale imitations of what worship normally is and i and i felt disappointed that i wasn't able to offer more to my people right we sang a couple of songs i hacked away at lots of parts of the liturgy that i normally wouldn't even consider dropping and it felt like a a sham and yet i at the same time i could see how um hope filled and life-giving it was for people who were there who really just loved being there in person for church and it might take folks they might go many times before it starts to really sink in that this isn't this isn't sort of building to eventually getting back in short order to what we knew this is this is what it is right and when we move inside it's going to be less of what even this outside pale imitation was (laughs) Like there will be no singing and virtually no talking and it will be even shorter and people will be more anxious and there will be more people sort of enforcing protocols and it won't be worship as we knew it. And it won't be community as we knew it, which is really what a lot of this is about is, is community. So it won't be community as we knew it. And you had this, so you had this uh, phrase that you threw at me is that, or I guess your brother, the social worker, that yeah. safe isn't always comfortable. And I even used that phrase in my last sermon, right? That, that being safe, following these protocols, isn't always comfortable. And, and so you wonder, are people, people are looking for comfortable more than they're looking for safe. And yet, as clergy as pastors caring for a community in charge of a whole community you have a different perspective on what it means to keep people safe the place that i really i first sort of identified this this difference of perspective from most people out there was i somehow got myself onto this research panel for flu vaccines in manitoba and it was the first time this research panel had not had like an in-person focus group, but instead had an online focus group. 
So it was about, I don't know, seven or eight people, you know, completely random people from, from the province giving their opinions on whether or not they would get flu vaccines and whether or not they would get flu vaccines for their children. So we were all parents of minor children. That was the, I guess, the one common factor. And as we talked about our various opinions on the pandemic and, and flu shots and all this stuff, I really saw that my perspective on the pandemic and how to live out my life and our family's life during this pandemic is a lot related to how I care for a community. How do I keep my congregation, my people safe? Whereas just about everybody else is coming at it from the perspective of what can I do? Well, these pandemics have limited, these pandemic protocols have limited my life. So what are the things that I can do? What are even the loopholes that I can exploit? What, is, what are the ways in which I can do the stuff that I want to do? And it's a very different perspective because my question is always, what if somebody gets sick because they came to church? Whereas I think most people thinking about coming to church are asking, how can I worship the way I want to worship? Or, or do the things that I want to do, right? I mean, it's not just not just even about worship, but how our how our decisions are made, which is I I think what you're getting at, right? And and the difference between when I make this decision, it's not just about me anymore right and pre-pandemic a lot of the decisions that we made really didn't impact other people in the same way as directly as directly right because we've had these conversations with our kids right and and explaining to them you know why we wear masks when we go out in public right or they've they've started school why are you wearing a mask to go to school now and and trying to find a similar life experience where we are doing things not only for our own safety but for the safety of others in our community and it's hard to come up with examples at least examples that four and six year olds can understand and relate to and get on board with. I mean, we were in Costco the other day, me for the first time in six months. And, and there's probably like 95% of people wearing masks, but there is a few folks out there who weren't. And I was just getting super frustrated and giving some people some death glares, which I know is a lot scarier coming from me than from most people. And I, and I did get some looks of shame from the unmasked out there. Um, but I also resolved that when I go back to Costco the next time, I'm going to grab a bunch of those free masks and hand them out to people that aren't wearing masks because I can get away with that. <laughs> or at least uh, people won't, <laughs> they might be annoyed with me, but they won't get too upset. Um but it it is it is indicative of different perspectives, right? I'm I'm constantly thinking about 
how is how are my choices affecting people around me? Because I can't help but get out of that lens when it comes to caring for my congregation, caring for for you know this group of people that I'm responsible for. And and then I think there's one other perspective that is sort of interesting in this, and that's the the population level, right? That a lot of our public health authorities are telling us about things and telling us about the things that we need to do to stay safe, but they're also looking at it as sort of even higher level than being responsible for the care of a community. They're thinking about population level. They're thinking about not overwhelming healthcare systems. They have accepted the fact that people are going to get sick. They've accepted the fact that people are going to die in this pandemic because that's their job. There's their job to look after sort of the care of the population and realize they can't save every single life because, because saving everybody from the coronavirus will mean losing lives to other things, right? Job loss, um, homelessness, all that other kind of stuff. But part of it is recognizing that the things that, that public health authorities, even with our best interests in mind, are telling us to do are not about the, the complete safety of our community, right? When they tell us that we can have 30% capacity in our building, it's not because that is safe for 30% of our normal capacity to gather in our building, because that is the size of an outbreak that they think the medical system can handle. That if, you know, if 60 people came to worship and 35 of them got coronavirus, the medical system wouldn't be overwhelmed. But if 240 people packed out our sanctuary and 180 of them got sick, that one event would overwhelm our hospitals because there would probably be 30 people who needed to be hospitalized because of the age of our congregation, because of you know, any number of factors. And so they don't want that to happen. That's what they're thinking. I'm thinking about, I don't want, you know, my favorite 80-year-old who sits in that pew that I can, who's always in that pew every Sunday. I don't want that person to get sick, you know, because we, we needed to gather for in-person worship. And that's what, where my perspective comes from. And so there is these differences in perspectives, these differences in understanding how we make these decisions and how we come about you know, deciding what is the right thing to do and how do we navigate this pandemic in the long term, right? Interestingly, as Eric mentioned in our last episode, one of the last things that we did before all of this pandemic stuff happened was attend a conference in Alberta. And the title was Responding to Disaster. And it was all about how the how the church can respond in times of crisis, in times of tragedy, natural disasters, when there are tragedies of mass mass murder, mass violence, mass killings. Um, and I think even the keynote 
spoke briefly about this pandemic because it was sort of on our radar about how, how the church can respond and what place the church has in the midst of times such as these. Right. And that, that's, that's sort of related to what I've been thinking about over the long haul, how the church can, can respond to the pandemic. And one of the things that we're maybe not, we're not, we haven't stepped into this space yet, but is something that is definitely needed by our society. You know, as school was starting last week, it was just kind of surreal that we were in the midst of a global pandemic and, you know, the, the radio, morning radio host was talking about back to school and this like, who's excited to go back to school? And, and sure, there's talk of pandemic, but, but this ritual pattern we're so, is so deeply ingrained of following like September is back to school. Summer is for going outside and doing fun things right, that we live by these patterns and they're so deeply ingrained that we really can't let them go. We can't get away from them. And so we're stuck in these rituals that have now this weird anxiety and tension that has been placed on them and they've lost some of their meaning. Like the excitement of going back to school and this fresh start, this new year of learning and growth has been co-opted by this new time of being with a bunch of people inside and risking our children, you know, children going and being sent to school because they have to learn and their learning is more important than the risk of getting sick. And, and I wonder, like, already there's, what, five or six, seven schools in a week that have had had cases at them already and so far only one case per school but who know who knows how long that's going to last it's not just going to be that level or it's not we're not going to stop getting cases at schools and so one of the things that we're missing is new meaning making in this world right public health officers do great things about helping us navigate this pandemic, but they do not give us meaning for our lives. They do not help us make new meaning in our lives. They don't tell us, what does this all mean for me? That's what the church does. That's what the church's job is, to tell us, what does this all mean for my life? What does God say this means for my life? How does And how does this pandemic affect my life in Christ? Or rather, how is my life in Christ define this pandemic. And I think that's one of the one of the things that we are lost by all these debates about whether we should go back to in-person worship or not, is we've really lost the opportunity as a church to be talking about what is the new meaning of life in the midst of a global pandemic. I mean, if anyone has a response to to what does what does the ever-present threat and reality of death in our life look like? It should be Christians. It should be people of faith following this Jesus guy who definitely has something to say about new life even after death, even when death is is front and center, even when death is fully experienced, Jesus has something to say about resurrection and new life. And so why aren't we talking about that? Why aren't we proclaiming that from the rooftops? Because our world is desperate to hear it. And, and instead, we're arguing over 
you know, whether we can sing inside or not, or any other number of kind of crazy things that churches do. But I guess churches are full of the church full is of people still who... <laughs> the church, even in the midst of a global pandemic. And what we are recognizing, what some of us are are proclaiming from various pulpits pulpits and podcasts and on Twitter and in different locations is the reality that that we are changing as the body of Christ, as the the church as we know it, is undergoing is undergoing this great metamorphosis. And Christians love the image of of the butterfly, right? As an image of new life and resurrection and hope. It's often used in Easter Sunday displays. And this year, as I'm learning and getting to know my new congregation, I discovered that many of them raise monarch butterflies. And so had the the joy of of watching the videos they were posting as these monarchs were were coming to life but then also learning that before you can become a butterfly you have to be goo first it's not as though the caterpillar just cocoons itself and then presto changeo I think we all think of like a werewolf, right? That you're this person and these like these hair grows, so it's like a caterpillar and these wings grow out of their body. No. I really don't know what I thought. Right, no, you you turn into mush. I did didn't think about it at all until I learned this you have to be goo first. And I thought, well, who wants to be goo? That we are we are goo right now. That's the thing. We're goo right now. This is our goo moment. And people don't get it. I mean, I most days I forget that we're goo, but yeah. This is like this isn't the new thing. We're not at the new thing yet. This is our goo moment. Right. We are goo. But nobody wants to be goo. Nobody wants to proclaim. The gospel is you are goo. Thanks be to God. So where do we go from here? In our gooiness. Good question. That's actually the title of Act 5 of our five-act conversation on ministry in the midst of a pandemic. So where do we go from here? What is... Can you tell me what's going to happen over the next uh, several months? What's the future? Let me consult my magic ball i heard there was going to be a vaccine sometime in october (laughs) hilarious that was a little politics joke in case you missed it stick to ministry well i (laughs) i it's not my idea but i read um online and and have adopted it for myself the idea of hybrid ministry which is sort of i guess like goo ministry but it's the idea that we have to do a few things at once, which means that we can't do everything we want, but we have to sort of divide our resources a little bit and you know divide and conquer. 
And so online ministry is here. It's here to stay. That needs time and attention. That needs our focus. We need to continue with that because no matter what we do in terms of gathering in person, no matter how we come back to church physically and together, online ministry is still going to be a primary access point for most people because the reality is, you know, our church can only have in our sanctuary 17 households for in-person worship, which is about 44 people if we get the the ideal ratio of household sizes per spot in our sanctuary. And that's, you know, half or so of our normal Sunday attendance. So that means half or more of our people are going to be accessing the church not in person. And so if that's not online, it means they're not accessing ministry at all. And so the first part of hybrid or the first side of hybrid ministry is online ministry. And it is not a replacement for in-person ministry. It's a new thing that we do in order to allow as many people as possible to access ministry. And then there is the other side, which is in-person ministry and figuring out safe, viable ways to do in-person ministry. And so that's a lot of the accommodations we already talked about, you know, lawn chair visits out on people's front lawns. That's um, outdoor worship as much as possible. That's, you know, confirmation bonfires. That's, um, you know, doing things like food drop-offs for the elderly who still might be, uh, you know, struggling to get to get their food on a regular basis. You know, there's a lot of in-person things we can do. We just have to be wary and careful and aware that it doesn't always start with in-person worship. There's other things that we can do safely and in person. You know, this winter's coming, fall's coming. There's going to be leaves to rake. There's going to be snow to shovel. These are things we can do in person for one another, not just to send the youth group out for a fundraiser, but maybe all of us can do those things for for those who need a little help uh, these days. And the needs that we had been meeting before the pandemic continue to exist, right? To visit and care for the sick to feed the hungry, right? Clothe those who are naked. All of those things continue to exist in in some cases for many people at a greater need, right? And so the opportunity for the church to do what the church does has not gone away. In many ways, it has only increased. And so we have more than enough opportunities to be who God calls us to be as the body of Christ out in the world. It's just a matter of identifying what those needs are and as congregations figuring out how to how to meet those needs and the areas where this is a need and here are people who can care for those people or who are passionate about this area and to encourage those people to continue or to re 
to re-energize into those areas of of caring for one another. Yeah, figuring out new and creative ways to do these things, recognizing that because this is our goo moment, this might be the only time we do some of this stuff. We might try something once for one year, and then by next year this time, things have changed so dramatically again that we would never consider the thing that we do this year, you know, next year when that comes around again. You know, some of the things that I've been thinking about are um, bringing back the old-time Reformation service on Sunday afternoon that used to be pretty popular, like in my grandparents' generation. And October 25th is often pretty cold in Canada, but if you do it at like 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you can probably get together, sing A Mighty Fortress, everybody brings a thermos of hot chocolate, have a little outdoor visit, and it's actually a pretty enjoyable time, right? I've thought about having people come individually in preparation for All Saints Sunday to be recorded, lighting a candle, maybe saying the name of a loved one that they're lighting a candle for, incorporating those recordings into our online worship service. You know, Advent is coming, and there's a lot of Christmas things that we love to do outside outside our congregation has a history of live nativity scenes this is the year to resurrect that that uh, outdoor live nativity scene this is the year to resurrect caroling right to sing outside for your neighbors should be a relatively safe thing to do if you do it socially distanced and 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 go sing outside right we can't sing inside but this is something we certainly could do it'll be a good year for you know, some sort of uh, winter party in January, maybe some sort of Valentine's Day event in in uh, February. And then when the snow you know starts to go around Easter in March, April, May time, that's the time to start you know outdoor worship again and and commit to that hybrid of of doing as much as we can outdoors. And if we're going to do in-person stuff to do it outside when the weather's nice. And so, and recognize that in two years, in 2022, we might laugh at the idea of <laughs> worshiping outdoors, but it's what we needed to do to go from, from caterpillar to goo to butterfly um, <laughs> in this time. So, you know, there's, um, it's, the it's a hybrid model, right, of thinking about creative ways to do in-person ministry moving to online, taking up that online space so people can access ministry, can still hear the gospel, can still form community. It's different when you're typing peace be with you in a comment section of a live stream video, but you're still saying to your to your sibling in Christ, peace be with you. So, you know. Right. And it turns out that there are things that actually make a lot more sense online. Right? I was having lunch with a colleague and she was telling me about their evening prayer service that takes place on their Facebook page every evening at 5 p.m. and how much more accessible it is for 10 minutes of prayer to be able to take place from your computer or your smartphone in your home or maybe before you leave work for the day than to commute to the church for 10 minutes of prayer. And how some of these pieces that we 
that we created as, in a lot of ways, stop gaps at the beginning of the pandemic are likely to become ways that we minister to our communities and that the way in which people are able to access our communities are so much broader than we could have ever imagined with opportunities that were really limited to the building and to people having access to the building and being able to get to the building and feel comfortable entering the building. So so being able to see some of those pieces that that likely won't be dropped quote unquote when this is all over because it will be this new way of being church. And so in a lot of ways I think not having a manual for pandemic ministry continues to be scary and some days more terrifying than others. Um, Maybe when I'm just like so aware that it's all goo (laughs) and not having something tangible. But it's also incredibly freeing because it means that we can experiment and try new ways of being the church and living into what it means to live out our faith and not just go to church but be the church and not in a cliche way but in a in a very faithful what does it mean to follow Jesus yeah this is this is the excitement of of a new church build except, except we are not building an actual building we're building a new way of being community and there's lots of it that we will be able to take forward into whatever the world looks like post pandemic. I'm here for it. Yeah. I'm excited too. Sort of the change that uh, I've been waiting for, for a decade. It just had to come in a really crappy way. All right. So that is, uh, I think that's probably where we're going to wrap up our conversation on ministry during a pandemic. There's probably a lot more to say, uh, but there's also probably, we said too much at the same time, because uh, it took us two episodes to say it all. Nevertheless, uh, so where can people find you on social media if they want to check you out? You can find me on Facebook, on my personal page, as well as through the congregational Facebook page that I serve, Messiah Lutheran Winnipeg, and also Instagram at C. Reedman Parker and occasionally on Twitter at Reedman Parker. How about you, Eric? So, of course, you can find me on my blog at millennialpastor.ca. And my mom asked me, how is millennial spelled the other day? Two L's, two N's, millennial. It's spelled the correct way, whatever your, your spell checker says is correct. Millennialpastor.ca. You can find me at the Millennial Pastor Facebook page on Facebook. You can find me at Parker Eric on Twitter. And then you can also find me, the pastor of Sherwood Park Lutheran Church in Winnipeg, at uh, facebook.com slash WPG or just uh, look for Sherwood Park Lutheran Church Facebook page. You can also find me at sherpark.ca, which is the church's 
uh, webpage. The Millennial Pastors Podcast is written and produced by us, the Reverend Courtney Reedman Parker and the Reverend Eric Parker, with our theme song provided by Lutheran Outdoor Ministry in Alberta and the North. All other music provided by audionautics.com. The Millennial Pastors Podcast is made possible by a grant from the Manitoba Northwestern Ontario Synod, whom you can find at mnosynod.org. This has been a couple of iPhone pastors for a typewriter church. We will see you on the other side. Bye for now. Bye.